Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my partner, Sam Hageli. Today, we have the great opportunity to speak with Steve Fiziok. Steve is a longtime radio and television broadcaster who currently covers the Kansas City Royals. He is also a Mid-America Emmy winner and a well-respected author. Steve, thanks for coming on. We appreciate the time today. Thank you very much, Steve and Sam. I'm delighted to be here. I was I grew up in Kansas City, so I love Kansas City sports. Definitely want to get your your story. You know, you've been in the sports broadcasting field for 40 years now. You know, growing up, was that an ambition that you had early on? Was that something that you really were like, okay, I really want to get in this field, or was like something that happened maybe in your life and you're like, okay, I gotta get into this. I think I've always been drawn to sports. I mean, I was a Kansas City Chiefs, Kansas City Royals, KU Jayhawks, K-State Wildcat, Mizzou Tiger fan growing up. And of the five kids in the family, I was the one who was drawn to sports the most, but I had limited athleticism. And then when I got to Kansas State University, it was that slap in the face of you're not as good as you think you are, but you do enjoy the storytelling aspect of it. So that's when I decided I actually took a year off because I was an academic probation my first semester, not knowing what I wanted to do, what I would do with my future. And then I took a a year off, worked in Kansas City as a busboy downtown and other odd jobs. And when I went back, I said, you know what? You're not a very good athlete, but you like talking about it. What if you tried play-by-play? So I was lucky to have a very good professor at Kansas State University by the name of Bob Fiddler, and he encouraged me. And I did my first play-by-play broadcast when I was 20 years old, maybe 19. And I, I just remember walking out of the broadcast booth of a high school football game and my hands were shaking. And they weren't shaking because the game was great. They were shaking because I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I wanted to do play-by-play. I didn't care if it was football, basketball, or baseball. I loved all three sports. So Kansas State was where I got my opportunity, and then I allowed that to grow, that passion. And I was very, very lucky to have a great professor who helped me along the way. So especially when you're doing this type of of this profession, whether it's within TV or radio, sometimes people will recognize that voice. Sometimes when people will be like, okay, that's Steve Physiog's voice, you know, did anybody tell you when you were growing up that like, okay, your voice is made for broadcasting over the years have been able to really carve your own voice and people like can relate to you once they start to hear you talk. Well, I've always been a storyteller. I was a reader growing up, and it wasn't necessarily sports books. It might be the classics by Steinbeck and Hemingway, Mitchell and Wallace Stegner, people like that. I just really enjoyed reading a good story or hearing a good story. And some of the great storytellers that I fell in love with earlier were were guys like Jack Buck and Ben Scully some of the great broadcasters in the the Midwest, like Denny Matthews, who I now have a chance to work with, Buddy Blattner, who was Denny's first partner. Fred White was one of my mentors, not only at Kansas State University, but in my growth 
Uh, tragically, we lost uh, Fred just a few years ago. But just listening to them tell stories and, and also thinking, could I do that? Could I tell a story like Fred just told a story or like Jack Buck told a story or Vince Scully, who, in my opinion, is the greatest storyteller of all time. But interestingly, all of those guys I just mentioned were baseball broadcasters, because I think those are the greatest storytellers, because baseball is basically three hours of conversation and five minutes of action. We'll get into maybe your past roles with various different sports, various different teams, but just to focus on the here and now, you know, you've been with the Kansas City Royals since 2012. You've had the opportunity, like you mentioned, to work with Denny Matthews, to work with Ryan Lefevre, to work with very, very solid, very, very professionals at their craft. Really kind of talk to us about maybe how that job opened up back in 2012 and how did it feel to be able to cover the Royals after you followed them for so many years growing up? Well, that was fascinating because um, I had been called by the Royals a couple of times prior to that. Fred White was usually the one making the phone call saying, hey, Steve, would you ever be interested? And I think the first time was in the early 1990s. Would you be interested in coming home? And at that time, I had a, a very good contract with ESPN, and I was also doing the Golden State Warriors. So it was not in my best interest to take the Royals job at that time. And there was another opportunity a little bit later. But when Ryan Lefevre got the job, Ryan and I were pretty good friends and we, we knew each other in the industry. I think both of us kind of wanted to work together. And Rex Hudler and I were working for the Angels for something like 14 years, and we were let go after the 2009 season. And I, and I still did some Major League Baseball for TBS and for Fox, but not for a team. And that's when the Royals approached me and said, if the opportunity arises, would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. You know, this is where I, I grew up, where I, I fell in love with the Royals, even in their very first year, 1969. Danny Matthews and I had been friends. So it was a it was a no-brainer to come home. And I also knew we were coming back. And and this is I'm talking in, in behalf of both Rex Hudler and myself, because Rex and I had been broadcast partners for the Angels. We're part of their world championship team in 2002. And we could see the success of the Royals on the horizon because before the 12th season, Hud and I talked to each other and we said, Hey, do you see what's happening? In Kansas City, they're winning championships at the A-ball level, the double-A level, the triple-A level, with guys like Hosmer and Moustakis and Herrera and Ventura and Kane and Perez and on and on. And I said, they're eventually going to get back to the postseason and do some great things. And little did we know that um, in 12, they had some success. In 13, they had a winning season. And then, of course, in 14 and 15, uh, they made it to the World Series and won one in 2015. So I really believe that we were getting there in the right time. It was an exciting time to get there. And I see the same things happening right now. Very young talent that's right now cutting their teeth at the big league level. And we had a couple of seasons where we lost 100 games in a row. But this last year, even despite all of the injuries, I can see greatness on the horizon. And I love the organization. I mean, it is so well run from the Glass family to the Sherman family to the direction and the integrity of Dayton Moore. It's, it's just a, a wonderful organization. You're starting to see the pieces. You know, Nicky Lopez batted 300 this year. Obviously, the amazing season from Salvador Perez, you know, having the major league lead in RBIs and tie-in with Vlad Guerrero for 48 homers. Pitching, Carlos Hernandez had a very promising rookie season. But, you know, kind of going back to, you mentioned Rex Hodler, you had that really strong relationship with him when you were with the Angels. 
talk about that relationship that you you've had now for well over 25 years for a lot of people that really don't know him personally, you know, they kind of see him as like this, not only a very positive guy, but kind of goofy or kind of like outlandish character. Like talk about the relationship <laughs> that you've had with him. And then also the relationship you've developed with Ryan Lefevre, Denny Matthews as well. We're all great friends. And that's the, uh, one of the great things I love about coming back home to the, to the Royals is we, we have deep friendships and it just doesn't involve the broadcasters like Ryan and Steve Stewart and Denny and HUD and Joel Goldberg and Jeff Montgomery. But it goes to the production team as well. Eric Guthrie, who is the producer engineer of the radio st staff, is just a great uh, person and a terrific talent. Steve Kurtenbach, uh, Kevin Cedargren, all of the guys in that t television truck we're all family. We go out uh, for dinners when we have days off on the road. And, and it's just really been a great unity, a great, a great teamwork. Quite frankly, I really believe that the, the leader in the clubhouse of that production team is Ryan Lefebvre. He just has these natural leadership skills. He's a dear friend. He's a guy who takes everybody's interest at heart. Like I said, I really feel blessed that the last job I, I will ever have in the business is with the team I grew up with, the Kansas City Royals, and working for working with so many great people. Talk to us a little bit about the ins and outs for people that don't know when you're calling these games, you know, how early do you get to these ballparks? What's the pre-production meetings and pre-production, you know, conversations like before a game and then afterwards, what's the kind of process? Well, COVID changed things a little bit because we're still not traveling. In 2020 and 2021, we were relegated to stay at home because we were one team. Uh, obviously, in 20, every broadcast team had to broadcast from their home site. That was rather difficult. When the team is at home, we could see the guys in the field. We could see where they were playing, where the defenders were playing, where the base runners were getting their leads. But when the team was on the road, say the Royals were in Cleveland, Ohio, we could only broadcast the game off of the monitor. So that made it difficult. Also, usually when I would get to the ballpark, and in this case, let's say the team is home. Well, I might get there at 345, four o'clock because the team starts to stretch at 430. So I'll leave my backpack in the in the broadcast booth, go down to the field, listen to Mike Matheny talk, uh, maybe visit with a pitching coach or a hitting coach, and then watch a little bit of batting practice. And thankfully, we were able to do that at, for home games this year. So I usually would get to the ballpark around four o'clock in the afternoon to do my work. But because of COVID, so much of it, my work was done at home where I could study up on both starting pitchers, studying up on the on the bullpens, et cetera. What trends might be taking place uh, at the big league level, not only with our Royals, but throughout Major League Baseball. So I could share that with our audience. So COVID changed a little bit, but I think in 2022, it'll get back <laughs> normal and we'll be able to broadcast the way we always did, travel with the team, be on the uh, uh, team airplane, the team bus, really engage actively with the players. You know, I mentioned uh, in the intro, well-respected author. So we'll kind of get into that as well. So you tried your hand at writing historical fiction a few years ago in 2018, wrote novels such as Walls of Luca, Above the Walls. And then recently a book was published this February called Walks with the Wind. Sam and I are interested of maybe why you decided to take up that path maybe, and then kind of what inspired you to, to write and what are those books about? 
Well, it all started in 2006, but I need to go back even further than that. Like I said, I've always been a reader because when you're on the road as often as a play-by-play broadcaster, in this case, I did college football, college basketball. There were years I did the NBA and the NFL. So you're constantly on the road. Well, for me, when I'm on the road, I like to read and I do like to read the classics. Well, as an individual gets older, sometimes they choose hobbies. Some guys choose tennis or golf. And in this case, I chose writing. And the story goes back to 2006 when my wife and I were vacationing in Italy. And believe it or not, I had a vivid dream a week before we went to this city of Luca, Italy. And the dream was about a great walled city and two families struggling to produce a great Sangiovese wine. I don't know why I had this dream, but it was a vivid dream. And instead of going back to bed, I wrote down the outline of my thoughts of the dream. And then uh, I told my wife about it as we toured Southern Italy and Southern Tuscany, I should say, in 2006. And then we hiked the Cinque Terre, went to Florence, went to Venice. And a week later, we were meeting friends in this town of Luca, Italy. And as we're driving towards the city, I saw these great walls and I said, oh my gosh, Stacy, this is the city that was in my dream. These are the walls. So now I'm interested. So I bought a book of the history of Luca and fell in love with the town and just created these characters. And I created them in a difficult time. So basically the walls of Luca takes place from 1914 to 1930. It's about two families trying to produce a great Sangiovese grape during Italy's dark days of World War I, the rise of fascism, Benito Mussolini, that book ends in 30, in 1930. And book two, Above the Walls, where it's a love story slash historical fiction, both of them are. Book two, Above the Walls, picks up in 1938, right after Benito Mussolini writes his manifesto of race solidifying his union with Adolf Hitler, how it affected the vineyard operators, the agriculture workers, and the citizens of Italy, because many people don't know that Italy was not only involved in World War II, but it was also involved in in a civil war at that time. So I wrote those two novels thinking, ah, they're garbage. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm writing for the first time, but I, I did have a very good developmental editor who helped me along the way. And very happily, both were honored for literary companies in their literary awards contest with the best historical fiction of 2018 and 2019 when I uh, debuted those novels. And The Walls of Luca won for best historical fiction 2018 by Reader's Favorite and Reader Views. And then 2019, the sequel Above the Walls won. Now, the third book, Walks with the Wind, is about baseball. And it's about a young man who is a Native American from the Southern Ute tribe. And I have been to the Southern Ute Reservation and worked with uh, their individuals at the Cultural Center and their Sundance Chief, just to make sure I was both accurate and respectful of the Ute community. But I've always been fascinated by pitchers. They're on the mound, they're alone, but it's a team sport, but only they can get out of the trouble that might be presenting itself. So what other profession also has to have an individual be successful when they're alone? And those are something that has always interested me, wildlife trackers, people who are outfitters, who can find animals that no one else can find. So I just had this thought of baseball player, pitcher, wildlife tracker, works for his family's outfitting company. He has these two gifts. Unfortunately, he's weak in another aspect of his life, and that's his spiritual side, that his sister helps him out. Now I'm telling the entire story, so I apologize for that. But it is a family story. It's a baseball story. It's an action-adventure story. It has political intrigue because the bad guy is a private military company owner who wants to use our our hero, Sam Cloud Carson's tracking skills, track for his security team in Afghanistan. So 
it does have all of that action, adventure, political intrigue, and it's done quite well. We received five-star reviews from several review companies, and we're, we're a finalist for action adventure, even though it's not action adventure genre. It's got baseball in it. So it really doesn't have a genre. So it's tough to put in there, but we finished in the top five of that. So I was very, very blessed to find that out. So for avid readers in the Kansas City community or, you know, readers that are maybe listening to this podcast around the country, what is the maybe best route for them to to get a hold of your book? Just go to Amazon and you can type in my name, Steve Fiziok, or you can type in The Walls of Luca. But because I have such a weird name, P-H-Y-S-I-O-C, it'll take you straight to the books. And all three books are listed. I just finished the sequel for Walks with the Wind, which is called Catching the Wind. Interestingly, our hero, Sam Cloud Carson, will be scouted by a team called Kansas City Royals. It will take place here in the Kansas City community, much of the book. Very cool, uh, Steve. Uh, so thank you for coming on today. I want to go back and talk about your uh, some of your broadcasting days and with the uh, Golden State Warriors, because during that time, they, they had the run TMZ with Tim Hardaway, Chris Mullen, and Mitch Richmond. What was that like? And especially with the fact that Mitch Richmond was a legend at Kansas State and being able to follow a player that came from your alma mater as a uh, commentator with the Warriors. Well, it was fantastic because I knew of Mitch. I actually had broadcast one of his college games for ESPN when Kansas State was in the NIT and they played Fresno State. Mitch had a big game. They actually put three defenders on him and he just tore the, the Bulldogs apart. But it was great getting there because we had that unity. He became a friend. But that was a team that I, I've been really, really fortunate to uh, be blessed with some winning organizations, but also organizations with integrity, great coaches great players. Three guys you mentioned, Chris Mullen, Tim Hardaway, and Mitch Richmond were the leaders of that team. And every single year I broadcast for them, they won like 50 to 55 games. Unfortunately, they were in the same division as the great Los Angeles Lakers with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson and James Worthy and Michael Cooper and on and on. So they just never could get past the Lakers. But it was a joy broadcasting for the Golden State Warriors in the time that I did that. That was also a, a, a time where ESPN was after me a little bit more. So I, I went away from the Warriors, put all my attention into ESPN from 1992 until I left for the 96 season. And that's when I joined Fox Sports. Oh, very cool. Yeah, those, those Warrior teams, those were some really exciting teams. I think now with like the Warriors of Curry... Uh... Draymond, Clay Thompson, and then Kevin Durant, they, those teams more resonate today, but those teams in the late 80s and early 90s, those were some really good Warriors teams that people uh, tend to forget about because they were so talented. You're right. They were outstanding. And the leadership on that team was amazing. And not only that, but they had some players from other countries who taught me a lot. Uh, Sharonis Marshallonis was on the 88 Olympic team, the Russian team that beat the U.S. First time we had lost to the Russians since way back in the 1960s in that game that was pretty much stolen from us. But Sharonis was really interesting to talk to, not only about basketball, but also about his country, Lithuania and Russia. So we had some amazing conversations about that. And then Uwe Blob, who was from Germany, played for Bob Knight. So I was able to find out about the Indiana program. We also had a gentleman by the name of Manu 
Knut Boll, who was seven feet, six inches tall from the Dinka tribe in Africa, and just his story. So it was really wonderful to not only share with American players, but European, African, Russian players, and, and get a scope of what was taking place, not only in their basketball lives, but also in their lives back in their countries. Fun fact, Manu Bull actually lived in Olathe, Kansas at one time, right. and his son, Bull Bull, he grew up in, a, in Olathe for a little bit and attended Bishop Miege at one point. Yeah, one of my favorite moments was Sharunas Marshallonis was new to the team. So was Uwe Blob, who was seven foot three inches tall. And let's see, it was myself, Uwe Blob, Sharunas Marshallonis. It might have been Chris Mullen and another fellow who was rather tall. I'm six foot three, so I was the shortest of them. But we were down in Los Angeles to play the Lakers and on Century Boulevard. That's where LAX is. And we we left our hotel to go to a sports bar so we could watch a basketball game. It was a preseason game. The Warriors were going to play the Lakers the next day. And as we're walking back, this player, Sharunas Marshallonis, remember I said in 1988, his Russian team beat the U.S. Olympic team. But as we're walking back, he taps me on the shoulder and he goes, you teach me the words to God bless America. And I go, okay. So all of a sudden, if you fast forward about a minute, we have all these tall guys, 7'3", 6'7", 6'5", 6'7", singing at the top of their lung, God bless America, walking down Century Boulevard. People probably thought we were crazy, but I thought, what a wonderful moment. A West German, a former member of the Russian Olympic team, and a bunch of Americans are walking down Century Boulevard in LA singing God bless America. That was pretty cool. Definitely. Absolutely. That's a very cool story. So uh, after the Warriors, uh, you went up up north, up the border to Canada to commentate the Vancouver Grizzlies when they became an expansion team with the uh, Toronto Raptors in the 95-96 season. What was that experience like living in Vancouver? Well, I didn't live in Vancouver because I actually, it was my first, let me see, uh, I was still working for ESPN, so I was still doing games back in the States, but they asked me to be their radio and TV announcer, and I said, you know what, I can't do all the games because... I can't commit myself to leaving uh, what I'm doing here. So they said, will you do our TV package? So there were only 25 games, but I worked with Michael Thompson. So I would travel up to do the ball games from the States because I was still doing, I think I did one year with the San Diego Padres while I was doing ESPN, but I also did college football and basketball and then the NBA. So I was rather busy. But one of the great moments was Vancouver was a hockey town. So they were relatively new to basketball. And I do remember the team Charles Barkley was playing on, I think in 95, I believe it was the Phoenix Suns. Mm -hmm. And they came to town. And I think Charles Barkley thought, you know what? I have to be the ambassador to the NBA. So he was amazing. During the game, he would high five fans. And then we was on the sideline. He'd go into the stands and talk to fans and he would hold babies. And I'm going, this is amazing. The game is going on. And Charles Barkley is like the ambassador for the NBA. It was a wonderful experience. Allowed me to see Charles in a different light. The other great moment I remember is that the Vancouver Grizzlies were playing the great Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. And the place was packed because they had all heard of Jordan, but they hadn't seen him. Well, Michael Jordan, the first 43 minutes was miserable. He was four for 12. The Bulls were down by 10 points. The Grizzlies, as bad as they were, were leading them. It wasn't a very good game. And I remember at a commercial break, or maybe it was right before the commercial break, I said to my color commentator, Michael Thompson, I said, you know what? I, I'm just sorry that Canada didn't get a chance to see the real Michael Jordan. There were five minutes left in the game, and the Bulls are down by 10 points. In the next five minutes, 
Michael Jordan scored 20 of the next 22 points on steals, on slam dunks, on fadeaways. And the place was rocking. And I turned to Michael Thompson and I said, I'm so glad Canada got to see the real Michael Jordan because he was sensational. He literally took over the game and won the game by himself. That's great. Yeah. That 95, 96 Bulls team was just like really phenomenal. It was unfortunate, though, that the Grizzlies could not work out in Vancouver. And then now they're, they're in, they've been in Memphis for, the, I think, the past 20 years. So do you think uh, Vancouver could support an MLB team? Do you ever see that being a possibility? You know, they're so close to Seattle. And I know there's a lot of Vancouver fans who love the Mariners. So I'm not sure. And it, it could be possible. But I just think that proximity of how close they are to the city of Seattle, you just have a lot of fans of the Mariners in that Pacific Northwest. Definitely. I, I definitely agree with that. So during my uh, childhood, first time I ever heard your voice wasn't on a broadcast, but it was on a uh, on my PlayStation 2 as you were the commentator of the uh, MLB 2K uh, 6 and 7 with uh, Gianna Zalasco. And, uh, Gianna Zalasco, yeah. Zalasco, yeah, my bad. So uh, how did you get end up getting selected for that? And uh, what went into the production? They just um, called me up and said, would you be interested? And I said, sure. And basically, it wasn't that far from where I lived in Southern California. It was on the way to Santa Barbara. So it was about a two-hour drive. But I would just stay there the entire week and um, broadcast for 12 hours a day. It was rather exhausting experience. But um, when the week was done, I was paid well and sent on my way. And I did that for about three or four years. And then their production company moved to San Francisco. So I went up one year more to do that. And I think after that was about the time where we were ready to come to uh, Kansas City area. For sure. I know you and uh, Rex Hudler as well has done uh, many uh, video yeah. games in the past too. So it's definitely, it was definitely uh, really cool that you had that opportunity to uh, be able to uh, have that voice in the, in those video games. A lot of it had to do with proximity. I was one of the guys in the area and Los Angeles is a very big media market and that's where the companies were. So I think it was advantageous for them just to hire someone in the area rather than a, a broadcaster fly in, Denny Matthews, to do it. So it was probably just much easier for them to call me up and say, hey, Fizz, could you drive up here and be part of this product? And I said, sure. I, I had time off and I was able to work it around my college basketball games and get some extra work. Definitely. So uh, you've commentated MLB, uh, college basketball, college football, NBA. So for uh, all the sports that you commentated, what is like the best MLB stadium you've been to? What's the best college football, college basketball venue you've been to? And what's the best NBA venue you've ever been to? Well, for college sports, I would have to say Ahern Fieldhouse at Kansas State University. As loud as Allen Fieldhouse is, and even Mac Court in Eugene, Oregon, which was wonderful, um, Ahern Fieldhouse was a big barn, and it was like the noise would go up, hit the ceiling, and bounce back down. And I don't know if you remember old Ahern Fieldhouse, but they had this balcony that the broadcasters would broadcast from. And when the crowd would get rocking and start stomping on their feet, that balcony would shake. You'd be scribbling when you try to fill in your scorebook. But Ahern Fieldhouse was amazing. On the Major League Baseball level, the old ballparks, I just love. 
Wrigley Field, Fenway Park. And I really like our ballpark in Kansas City. I mean, Kauffman Stadium is a beautiful facility. And obviously, I have been to every single ballpark in America. Some of the new ones, they've done a great job with, obviously, Camden Yards with the start of that. But I love San Francisco's new ballpark where the Giants play. It's beautiful. The setting on the Bay is magnificent. In the NFL, I'd have to say Green Bay. That was my favorite facility to broadcast from, just the setting, um, the history of the, of the Packers, the closeness of the fans to the field. In college football, I remember doing a game at old LSU Stadium years and years ago in Baton Rouge. That was pretty remarkable. Oh, the big house in Michigan. That was very cool. Oregon, where the Ducks play. So, so those are some of the great facilities that I've been to. I'm trying to think about the NBA, I guess... Boston Garden, watching Larry Bird play at Boston Garden. And I went down to the floor to check out the floor. It was a mess. You could pick up pieces of wood from the floor. And one of their players said that Larry was so clever defensively that he would actually angle an offensive player to a certain area where he knew there was a dead spot on the floor. And as soon as that dribble would hit that dead spot, that's when Larry would go and slap it away. But Boston Garden, the old Chicago Stadium where Michael Jordan played, that place was rocking like crazy. There have been so many facilities that, that I broadcast from, but, but I would have to say my most cherished moments are coming home and broadcasting the team I loved growing up, the Kansas City Royals. They were my team growing up, along with the Kansas City A's first, then the Royals, and now to come back home and, and broadcast the Royals and see them win a world championship in 2015 was very, very special. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I actually been to a Hearn Field House uh, recently because I, I ran a track meet there, which they built that into an indoor track. So I've been got to experience a Hearn Field House. I went last week, I was on a tour to Arrowhead and Kaufman. I thought about how Kansas City was ahead of its time when it came to building like baseball only and football only because back in like the 70s, 80s, 90s, a lot of teams were playing in multi-purpose stadiums. KC was really the first one that just decided to go retro, the retro style ballpark and then have their own football stadium, which, and then once like the Orioles built Camden Yards, everybody went back to the trend of the retro style ballparks rather than playing a multi-purpose. And you find out when you go to some of those ballparks, how much it's helped out the entire community because where Camden Yards was, that was a pit. It was an absolute mess. And now it's a real thriving area with hotels and restaurants. And the same thing is true with Coors Field in Colorado. That downtown area was depressed and Coors Field really uh, allowed it to grow and thrive. And now you have these fantastic restaurants and hotels surrounding the area. Same thing is true in San Francisco, in Seattle. In, in Minneapolis, Minnesota with new target field. So baseball, it's, it's not only about just putting a team downtown, it's about building the entire infrastructure of the community downtown and supporting the city. Yeah, definitely. The economic impact from those stadiums thrive and are reliable for the economy in each uh, city and state. So uh, throughout the years, you've uh, You've commentated so many games and uh, in different sports. Can you tell me what's the best game that you ever commentated and what was the worst game that you ever commentated? I don't think I can put a figure on it and say this was the best or this was the worst. I think anytime you're part of a championship, those are special moments. And whether it was college football and watching USC win a couple of college football championships or UCLA and Arizona, 
when I did the Pac-10 because I got close with the coaching staff and the players and really enjoyed that experience. And of course, in 2002, when the Angels won the championship and we were part of that broadcast team. But I don't think anything could surpass what we saw in 14 and 15. Just growing up in the area, and there are times where I'm sitting in the broadcast booth looking down at a, at a child uh, sitting in the stands going, that was me. That was me 60 years ago in the 1960s there with my dad and just enjoying Kansas City A's baseball. And later when the Royals came to in existence in 1969, pulling for the team and wanting them to win in the 70s when they had such great teams, but the New York Yankees interrupted them and then finally make it to the World Series before losing to the Phillies in 80 and then winning it in 85. And even though I was in Cincinnati at the time, I was pulling for the Royals in that year. But then to be part of the team, know the guys, care about them, to know the uh, backbone of the organization, the integrity, people like Dayton Moore and uh, his entire staff and the coaching staff and the players they had. I'll, I'll be pulling for people like Eric Hosmer and Mike Moustakis and Lorenzo Cain for the rest of my life because of the of the young men they are and how they, as I like to say, how they left their egos in the locker room and came together as a unit to win a championship. Because, because quite frankly, I don't know if they were the best, most talented individuals in all of baseball that year, but I do know this in 14 and 15, I, I felt they were the best team, the best unit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those 2014, 15 teams. So those were really special. Just thinking about just reflecting on like, Growing up, going to the game, Royals games in 2005, just watch them lose 100 games a year, just make some of the worst, watching some of the worst baseball that MLB probably has ever seen. And then to finally see them be able to become that team, become a championship team when I think most Kansas City people just were just hoping this team would get to the playoffs. Going from 85, they had a 29 year playoff drought, and then seeing them actually not just getting to the playoffs, but then making it to the World Series. and taking the Giants to seven and then coming back the next year and getting over that hump. That was a uh, very special to uh, everybody that grew up a Royals fan and, and a, and a Kansas, lifelong Kansas City sports fan for that matter. Exactly. And Jeff Montgomery, who is our Royals Hall of Fame pitcher, I go to him quite often because he's been through that tough experience. He was one of the great closes in our game on some very, very bad teams. And I asked him one time, I said, when did it go bad? And he said, when Mr. Kaufman died. And I said, when did things turn around? And he said, when Mr. Glass hired Dayton Moore as the new general manager, he said, that's when things began to turn around. But before that, Monty was part of an era where the Royals had 10 owners. So it's very difficult to make trades, to make decisions. But when Mr. Glass hired, when Mr. Glass, I should say, took over complete control of the team and hired Dayton Moore, he basically said, okay, you run the team. I trust you. And Dayton and his staff did a great job finding that talent, nurturing that talent, bringing it to fruition. And what he wanted to see came true because he said, I want to win. I want to teach people how to be leaders and win. And they won at the A-ball level, the double-A level, triple-A level, obviously made some mistakes early when they were called up to the major leagues, but eventually they took that and together they won a championship. And I see the same thing happening with this group of young men, because I really like the talent we have at the minor leagues and our young pitchers that we have that uh, I think are going to contend for a title very, very soon.
I think I, I like our guys like Bobby Witt Jr. I think I think we're got we got a lot of promise and just uh, I just want to see Thaldor Perez get one more playoff push as long as he's in his prime because I think he's got at least five good more years in him and I think he has he has a chance to be one of the greatest players not just at the catcher position but definitely in Royals history. Well, he could be our second Hall of Famer after George Brett to play the, his entire career with one organization. And Salvi is fantastic, and he had the best year of his career. But I really think a lot of it had to do with the way he was managed. I uh, think the world of Mike Matheny, and I just love the fact that Salvi's past, the workload that Salvi had in the past was almost too much. And I just thought the way Mike managed him in 2021, where he allowed him to catch like 110 games, made sure he got in the lineup those other 60 games as the designated hitter, but it allowed him to have a great second half. And because the Royals needed him so badly in 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 in our push to get back to the postseason, win a world championship, we played him a lot. And a lot of times he would fade in the second half because quite frankly, he was exhausted, but he was very fresh in September this year. And I think Mike Matheny's uh, management of that catching position had a lot to do with it. For sure, especially Medini, former uh, former catcher, he knows what it's like being behind her. And then one more thing about Salvador Perez is, how do you think his like season happened? Do you think it like happened also because his I noticed his plate discipline was probably was a lot better than uh, years in the past. Do you think did you see a lot of improvement in that this year following the team? I think a lot of it has to do with just experience knowing how a pitcher is going to work you, how they've worked you in the past. And because of it, he's just a more accomplished hitter. I think you can say strike zone discipline has something to do with that. But I just think he's a more mature, accomplished hitter. And he is so gifted and so talented and so strong that when a pitcher makes a mistake, he hits it a long, long way. And I, I think his average was like 425 feet for his home runs this year. But he didn't have too many um, wall scrapers. Pretty much all of Salvador Perez home runs were no doubters but I think he's a big part of the Royals team coming together he's become a real leader in that clubhouse I, I like the leadership on the team from top to bottom but it begins with Salvador Perez who's been there the longest you mentioned about different ballparks and you mentioned Kauffman Stadium and there's a big proposal here that maybe Kauffman Stadium is moved downtown at some point in the next five or six years what is your thoughts on maybe the Royals having a downtown ballpark compared to where they're at? Well, I should preface it by saying I know nothing of it other than what I hear, like you hear, through the media, through the newspaper, through radio and t television. We did have John Sherman, the owner of the team, on our broadcast at the end of the year, and he, and he told us the value. And I knew that when I uh, talked with you guys about the value of Camden Yards in downtown Baltimore, the value of Coors Field in downtown Denver, the value of the Giants ballpark in downtown San Francisco. There are countless examples of how it really builds up the entire infrastructure and city. And, and all of a sudden, you've got great restaurants. I, I, I compare Kansas City to when I grew up. And I just remember going downtown in the 1960s where my dad worked, and it was kind of gray and kind of depressed. But they've done a great job with the Crossroads District, the Power and Light District. Obviously, the plaza has always been magnificent. But I, uh, I would love to see it. And, but I have no information or knowledge, but I just see what changes have, uh, have happened when other ballparks have come into existence in other communities for Major League Baseball. And it's not only helped out the ball club, 
it's helped out the entire community. Steve, we appreciate you, you know, taking the time. And I mean, you had some, you've had definitely some amazing stories from the books that you've written to your time covering four or five teams growing up, obviously your time with the Royals, some really good content that you provided, but Sam and I really, you know, appreciate you taking the time this afternoon to speak with us. Well, you know what? I love to talk about sports because I think it's the greatest example of when individuals think less about themselves and more about the team, how great things can happen. And in my career in football, basketball, and baseball, I have seen it countless times. And it's just been a joy to come home and be able to articulate my feelings, my thoughts about the teams that I loved growing up. And when they've won championships, whether it was the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl, that was done with, with, with team great teamwork. Or the Royals winning in 14 and 15, that was done with great teamwork. So to be able to uh, tell that story to our fans has been a joy for me. And here I am at the twilight of my career and still loving it, still loving every moment, but really blessed to do it in my hometown. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Steve, for coming on and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing hearing you again soon when uh, baseball comes around. Steve and Sam, thank you very much. I can't wait to get to spring training to talk about Royals baseball again. All right, well, thank you so much, Steve. Have a good rest of your day. For those who are listening to our show for the first time, all our past and future episodes are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Sports Mecca.